This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that looks at new films and theaters and connects them to films from days gone by that maybe you need to catch up on. Today, we're going to ask the question, if you love dogs and you love the films of Wes Anderson, then you'll probably love Isle of Dogs. I'm Stephen Cook, and I'm an entertainment reporter with the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, and I am okay with the fact that wasn't a question, Stephen. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I am at Flaw on the Iris, uh, which is a blog, and you can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian. The polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast. A Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling, is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. So today we're talking Wes Anderson. Uh, and I discovered a few things about Mr. Anderson when I went back to do a little bit of research about the filmmaker from Texas. Um, he was born on the 1st of May, 1969. So his birthday is coming up. Oh, he's, uh, he's going to be 49. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, I, don't, I guess it depends on when this airs or when you'll be, when our listeners are, our That's hordes of, of, of loyal listeners are listening to the podcast, but uh, it could be happening right now, his birthday. Um, he, uh, I, I recall that uh, Amy Poehler at the Golden Globes a couple of years ago made a joke about him. He said, uh, they said, uh, as usual, he arrived on a bicycle made of antique tuba parts, <laughs> <laughs> which, which I thought was just a terrific uh, joke. And I think it actually really nails some of his particular their peculiarities. He's uh He's a filmmaker who a lot of people call an acquired taste. He's like asparagus or jazz. Some find him too precious and twee or self-conscious to take seriously. I can understand that, but I am a big fan of Wes Anderson in a general sense. I think my favorite films of his are probably Rushmore, The Grand Budapest Hotel, and Steve Zissou in The Life Aquatic, because I feel like those are the films that feel really leavened by a darker core, something to balance his, you know, obsession with primary colors, his symmetry, he loves the 1960s, and a certain sweetness that sometimes permeates his films. But uh, what I think is pretty wonderful is that he has found an audience and he keeps, he's, he's able to continue to make really interesting, visually challenging, uh, you know, different stories. He has an endless number of stories in his back pocket and he keeps bringing them to, to bear. And I think he's just getting, in some ways, you know, every time a Wes Anderson film is in the cinemas, it's a, it's, it's an event and uh, there's no one else like him. And for that reason alone, I think, I think he's, uh, he's pretty wonderful. 
Yeah, he hits so many of my sweet spots, it almost makes me sick. <laughs> you know, I, 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 you know I, I almost feel like I'm being directly pandered to because he does so many things based on things that I like. And it's, uh, it's unnerving. No, I don't mean that in a negative way, but I know What are these things, though? Well, just, you know, like he, he picks my favorite music. He, there are homages to some of my favorite cinematic oeuvres, if you will. Um, you know, I do like whimsy in an era when that's sort of not really all that fashionable. Uh, and, uh, you know, and he, he's, uh, pr- you know, the films are primarily comedies, uh, which tend not to be done very well. And, and we've talked about maybe doing that in another podcast about looking at some some modern day comedies. But, but uh, I, you know, I, it's almost like I'm, I'm afraid to like go dive into the deep end with these films sometimes because... I know that I am exactly the person they're kind of aimed at, <laughs> and uh, you know, for and uh, of course, I, I own copies of all of them. I, I do adore these films, uh, and uh, and I watch them, and I'm, I'm going, this is too on the nose for me. It, it almost feels like too much me in a way, like, and maybe maybe I'm just kind of uh, caught off guard by that to some degree. Like, I, I mean, the best example I can think of is in the Darjeeling Limited when he picks not one but a handful of songs by my favorite band the kinks from one of their late well not late career but late 60s albums from the lola album of course he doesn't pick the song lola which is the one song that everybody knows off that record but he picks some of the deep album cuts which are my personal favorites and he has these very moving scenes set to them and i'm like you know i don't know maybe maybe i'm just jealous (laughs) that i think i wasn't i i'm not in a position to do that myself so i guess maybe he's he's kind of like my my cinema surrogate in a way well let me ask you this steven since you just mentioned that if you had the opportunity to interview mr anderson what would you ask him what what are the three questions that you would you would want to know uh, well, I certainly want to ask him about the music. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like I've learned a lot about 60s pop just by going to see his oh, movies. Oh, for sure. I mean, using, like in, in Rushmore, using, uh, there's a song by the by a, an obscure mod band called The Creation, who, you know, were kind of completely forgotten, for the most part, by, you know, sort of mainstream rock and roll history. Um, you know, they were produced by Shel Talmy, who also produced the early Who singles and, and the early Kinks records, and that's kind of the only reason anyone would know that band and yet he used one of their best songs to great effect in Rushmore and uh, you know so and then and then uh, in uh, Royal Tenenbaums he makes great use of one of my favorite Rolling Stones albums Between the Buttons uh, and you know another thing that just it's like oh, it's too perfect um, and uh, so I'd want to ask him about the music and, and, and how he's been able to uh, incorporate that along with the film music I mean using songs from Bollywood and Satyajit Ray films in the Darjeeling Limited, which of course are the perfect choices for that film. And, uh, you know, just maybe talking about constructing these universes because I mean, each, each film is so meticulously put together in terms of the design and, 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 and the way it's shot and, and, and the lighting and, and the, the, the character choices and everything. Um, you know, trying to find out how much of that goes into, goes on in his head before he ever, you know, even maybe even starts working on a screenplay to some degree. And um, I don't know, I'd, I'd be curious to know what cinematic worlds maybe he hasn't dealt, like what areas that he's enthusi- enthusiastic about that maybe he hasn't been able to dip into in some way. Like, um, you know, he does wear his influences very much on his sleeve, but 
there's got to be a whole lot of stuff that he hasn't uh, even dipped his toe into yet, and I'd be curious to know what some of that some of that stuff is. Yeah, that's fair. I, I'd I'd be I'd read that article if you wrote it, sir, <laughs> and I would like to hear the answer to those questions. Uh, so his new film out now is Isle of Dogs, and it is as brilliant and idiosyncratic, I think, as anything I've seen in his peculiar output. Um, I mean, I I don't know that I. I don't know that I loved it like I have loved some of his other his live action films. I, I, his only other animated piece was the Fantastic Mr. Fox, which I had, was felt really ambivalent about. This one I like more than yeah, Fantastic Mr. Fox, but uh, I yeah I, I just um, I'm not sure that animation. The, uh, the the sort of control that he exercises in animation is so complete that I I feel like it it sort of uh, it's both brings out its best and maybe worst qualities. Yeah, I feel that a bit of a remove from it to some degree. Yeah, yeah, and I f- I feel like hey, the human beings that he collaborates with in his films bring something special too. Yeah, and I and I also appreciate that he has this sort of group of collaborators that he works with very often. There's very often you see the same names returning and returning again and again. Jason Schwartzman earned he owes his whole career to pretty much to uh, Wes Anderson. And of course, Bill Murray has been a regular sort of lucky charm in in his films since Rushmore. Um, now, this film is, uh, for those of you who have not seen it or maybe don't know too much about it, it's an animation set in the near future in a, on a fictionalized Japan, a Japanese city, wherein a um, the mayor uh, has engineered a way to get rid of dogs by sending them to an island of a garbage island off the coast the the dogs are apparently all carrying a virus it's very dangerous so they need to go off there and so they they roam in packs and they suffer and they starve and they 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 carry the dog flu or snout fever depending on (laughs) what you want to call it and uh this genuine post-apocalyptic scenario. And of course, the dog voice actors include Bill Murray, as well as Brian Cranston and Jeff Goldblum and Bob Balaban and Edward Norton, uh, Scarlett Johansson and Tilda Swinton. And uh, as and then the, uh, the, the human cast, I guess, is played uh, largely by Japanese actors. And uh, yeah, and then the story is about a young man who flies to the island looking for his missing dog. And meanwhile, a sort of a... a movement back in in the town to sort of usurp the power of the mayor goes gets going uh, and it's uh it's you know it's full of andersonian uh, qualities his usual fussiness filling the frame with uh, visual treats sort of steampunk mechanics and uh a lot of detail, incredible amount of detail. Even while I felt like some of the narrative thrusts of the story sort of came and went, it was a bit up and down in terms of like holding all of my interest to the narrative. His he fills his frame with so much stuff that you can't help but you know. I think a three D uh, movie from Wes Anderson <laughs> yes. would be pointless because you really want to be able to look around on the frame and see all the detail he's put in there. It's not. It's not just about the lead characters. It's about the whole world, the whole universe that he creates. And the, the details are, are astounding. A lot of it, and again, and it comes into the music. He uses a lot of uh, source music from the soundtracks of some of the Japanese films that he's uh, been inspired by. Uh, I think maybe some 60s Japanese uh, pop tunes creep in there as well. Um, you know, and, and certainly visual elements like, um, you know, Mayor Kobayashi, Clearly is inspired by the look of of um, 
Toshiro Mifune. Oh yeah, you know, especially uh, I think the the maybe the Bad Sleep Well, a, a, a sort of a modern day set uh, Akira Kurosawa film, not one of his samurai epics, but uh, a sort of a corporate um, set uh, drama, or or perhaps uh, High and Low, his kidnapping thriller based on a um, an Evan Hunter uh, novel, and uh, where. We get a modern day uh, version of uh, corporate uh, of um, Mifune and uh, and and you know Kobayashi is, has that look, that stern look, and the the kind of the gray streak through his hair and and, and everything. And uh, you know the kids seem to reference maybe some of the kids in the the films by uh, the Japanese director Ozu, who often uh, features uh, children in an interesting way. Uh, Saturday. Is it Saturday morning? I, th- I think is the, the film where the family gets a TV for the first time and the kids are transfixed by it. I think that's uh, that's kind of a a big influence here. And and uh, you know you can want you can enjoy these films without spotting playing spot the influence. But uh, and 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 sometimes it can be a little distracting. I find <laughs> for me, you know, if, as I pick up on these things as they go along. And I think I need maybe I need to wait a while, watch it again, and try not to think about that stuff. Uh, I find a lot of these films, often I like them a lot more the second time around. I haven't had that opportunity with with, um, with Isle of Dogs. Now, not all the films improve with uh, second viewings, but uh, things like uh, Darjeeling Express, and or Darjeeling Limited, rather, and uh, and um, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, uh, I both liked a lot more after I'd give myself some time and return to them. And yeah, me could too. And focus in on some of the details, some of the sort of side characters um you know maybe appreciating that you know the, the flaws of the characters that were annoying the first time around are part of a bigger whole the second time around mm-hmm. so the, there is uh there is a lot to be gained from returning to these films and uh seeing them with with fresh eyes a uh, second time around and and kind of picking up some of the stuff from the, from the fringes of the frame. Uh, and uh, I can't say that for a lot of uh, modern-day filmmakers where I you know, feel the need to return to, to past works um, you know, when there's fresh stuff coming down the pipe. And I find his films, I really do uh, get something from repeated viewings. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and he is someone who is, like I said, just had that. He is, it's a visual banquet every time. Uh, and I really, I really enjoy, I mean, he clearly is a student of film and a scholar of film. And I think that's why he has such a high, held in high regard by film lovers like you and I, Stephen. Um, now he has never felt shy about telling stories set in other cultures. Uh, the Darjeeling Limited, uh, uh, Budapest Hotel, of course, set in some fictionalized Eastern European country. And now he's done uh, a film set in Japan. Now he has earned a certain amount of criticism for that. Uh, uh, you know, there is Hollywood has a terrible uh, history with sort of, um, you know, exploiting uh, cultures, other cultures for its own gain. And certainly the, the, the accusation of Orientalism has been leveled at Mr. Anderson in this case. I, I spent about a week just reading about this, <laughs> which I maybe should be cool for sure. Maybe I should have uh, held off before going to, maybe I should have seen it and then read about it. But because um, I think it did affect the way I appreciated the film in some way, because I was really wondering, you know, is this appropriate? Some of these decisions um, uh, around the film. Now, I, I wrote a lot about it on my blog, uh, and I think people should feel free to check out my blog if they if they'd like to I, now that I've sort of settled in my mind about it a little bit and I I sort of stepped away from it I think you know um I think there is an argument to be made that some of this stuff is is maybe a little insensitive but I don't think at any time Anderson intends to exploit I think he wants to share his love of Japanese culture 
um, in a way that is genuine and thoughtful, and he collaborates with Japanese artists and and uh, uh, writers and actors. Uh, and yeah, I, I just I wonder whether or not all of this fervor around this issue is a little overdone. Uh, I, I'm what I'm looking forward to is reading some actual uh, Japanese writers' uh, opinions on the film and whether or not they find it uh, offensive or, or or not. I I'm I'm gonna look for those those thoughts right now. I think I think it's one of those cases where you can. You know, I think we are challenged in the time that we're living in to hold two things in our heads at the same time. And I think I think I can respect and admire the work while also considering, okay, well, maybe this isn't entirely appropriate. I don't know. You know, did you have any thoughts on that, Stephen? I, I, you know, I recently watched, for example, uh, the 1959, 1960 film, The World of Susie Wong, where... uh, budding artist William Holden goes to Hong Kong and falls in love with a Chinese prostitute. <laughs> and uh, and that is a good example or of bad Orientalism, if you were, like, you know, where it was the culture and the scenery was kind of being exploited and, and these characters were very cardboard and then uh, the whole thing felt kind of exploitative, even though it was like a big splashy Hollywood-made film. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of treading lightly on the whole prostitution angle because you can only go so far with that in a Hollywood film in 1959. But at the same time, the whole thing kind of leaves a, a bad taste in your mouth when it's, you know, the, the you know, any uh, Hong Kong or Chinese character is kind of there for background color or whatever, if you will. And, that, and that's sort of a, a prime example. I won't say good example because obviously that's not the case, but a prime example of, of what the, the people who are, have this kind of issue are talking about, and the, you certainly see this in a lot more uh, of the sort of classic Hollywood, where uh, stereotypes were loud and clear, and and uh, you know have not aged terribly well. It's it's really hard to find examples um, of the films that have from that period. Uh, here, I feel like Anderson was very keenly aware of this idea from from square one. I mean, he 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 obviously has a love for Japanese culture, Japanese film, Japanese music. And, you know, and the broad range of it uh, from, you know, from the work of Ozu, who's a cinematic poetic master, to Godzilla and, and anime and, you know, Astro Boy. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty broad spectrum, just, totally. as, just as North American Western culture has a broad spectrum and, and British and, and European and, and so on. Um, so uh, I, I think and, and by, you know, ensuring that the cast of uh, of voice actors from Japan included people like Yoko Ono and and um, uh, I think Ken Takakura maybe no not him uh, Koyu Rankin the kid uh, I guess he's half Canadian half uh, half Japanese who plays Atari who's the main hero um, you know I, I think he was very careful in, in how he cast this film and how you know that, that the characters didn't devolve into stereotypes and so on and, and you feel that all along the way mm-hmm. um and I, I guess the feeling is that it wasn't worth the effort <laughs> on some people's behalf. But it's you know if if you're obsessed with the culture and want to present your take on it, uh, I don't think that's necessarily invalid. So you know it's it's hard to say. I mean, John Woo, for example, was in love with like French gangster films and uh, by by Melville and you know with Ellen Delon and so on, and and then he borrowed from that to make The Killer. So. Does that invalidate that film? I, That's a good question. You know, yeah, you know he's yeah. sort of grafting French gangster films onto Hong Kong mob culture, and 
you know, the result is, is a great film that, that, that works whether you know that or not. Obviously, this is a lot more blatant in its use of styles and so on. But I, I do think there is a certain amount of respect in this film where not, you know, and certainly not everything's going to work and some things are going to fall flat, but you can't paint the whole film with that brush, I don't think. Yeah, that's fair. I, I think it's, I'm glad we're having the conversation because I think that's where it's important to discuss these ideas. But uh, I don't think in any way that one should boycott a work as interesting as this for these kinds of reasons. I think go see it. You know, make up your own mind, uh, and uh, you know, and have that conversation. But uh, yeah, I think there's a lot. There is a lot to enjoy in Isle of Dogs, and uh, you know, and I, I would say that uh, that it's uh, it's just one another one of Anderson's bizarre visions that uh, that people seem to really dig, and, and I'm glad I'm glad he's out there making them, frankly. Yeah, and I think I think he took some heat for the Darjeeling Limited. Yeah, he did. Uh, you know, he which did. is a few films back, and uh, maybe more deservedly so for that film in terms of the way some of the uh, the Indian characters were portrayed or presented. You know, in a more kind of westernized way. And yes, he was uh, paying homage to the Satyajit Ray films and and to Bollywood to a certain degree. Um, in fact, I just saw one of the films that was a direct inspiration for it, um, which uh, only just now has become available in North America through Criterion. And it's a, a Satyajit Ray film called um, The Hero about a, um, about a Bollywood or, or, you know, a Bombay movie star who is on a train to accept an award at a ceremony. And, and the train travel involves, you, you get this very clear picture of traveling across India by train, but he also has these flashbacks to his career and life. And he's reflecting on, the choices he's made that have made him a star, but have maybe left other people in his wake, and so on. And there's a lot of that uh, going on in uh, in the Darjeeling Limited. And it was f- cool to see it without actually knowing, like knowing that was a clear influence on this film, because I just hadn't had the opportunity to see it. And obviously, Wes Anderson had seen it at Film Forum or some retrospective or something like that. And um, you know, a film that was otherwise not that easy to find in North America, anyway. And um, so it was kind of interesting to see that film kind of jump out at you and go, oh, this was the kind of the Rosetta Stone for that other film. Um, whether or not he made completely good use of all those influences, um, I think it's pretty safe to say that he didn't. Um, a lot of it works. Some of it doesn't. Um, you know, if you try to stick to these idiots abroad aspect of it, um, you know, I guess that kind of works. But Yeah, uh, I'd say it's a little bit of carry on up the Ganges. There's a little bit of that, and I, I, I think that, that maybe if he, you know, given his druthers, he may have approached that material in a different way if he was making that film today. But, um, uh, and, and as far as uh, Budapest Hotel goes, I think he was, I mean, there, it takes place in different eras, obviously, but uh, a lot of it, I think, was a throwback to those Hollywood comedies that took place in a mythical European Ruritania was kind of the the, uh, the catchphrase for the just non-existent European empire that's vaguely Hungarian, Bohemian, whatever you want to call Marx it. Marx Brothers. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. Fredonia and right. uh, Klopstockia, whatever, you know, that, which I think was in a W.C. Fields movie. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that was the clear direction he was going in. And I don't think he was doing a lot of cultural um, uh, appropriation with that film per se. Uh, but, uh, you know, I guess, I guess there are elements of that sort of leaking in at the seams. But, uh, but I think with, with Isle of Dogs, I think you can feel the due diligence that's being done there. 
we've been watching the films of, of Wes Anderson, uh, going back to his very first film, Bottle Rocket, in preparation for this show. And it's been fun to revisit the films. Most of them hold up well for second viewings. Some of them even approve with second viewings. Uh, Bottle Rocket is one of those films where I think it stayed about the same. Uh, and, um, and this was the first time I'd seen it. And this is your first time seeing it, so yeah. you have no opinion on it. <laughs> <laughs> to base on it, uh, watching it the second time around, but I uh, other I, than his entire, you know, well, cinema yeah. uh, from from nineteen ninety six onward, it's so, funny watching the first film of somebody who you've seen, you know, develop and become this this filmmaker, this prolific filmmaker. Yeah, and it's it's not like he was strong out of the box, like say uh, my favorite director. Um, John Huston with the Maltese Falcon. Uh, this is, uh, you know, very much a first feature. It's it's got a lot of energy. He's trying a lot of uh, fun and fresh things. Uh, there are elements of it that uh, feel maybe a little too obviously quirky. Although saying that in the case of Wes Anderson is, you know, kind of like taking Coles to Newcastle. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and, and a lot of the familiar faces are in place. We've got Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson. Um, you know, and some other characters. We've got a, an actor named Brian Tenenbaum. I wonder how that uh, would play, <laughs> come into play later on. Um, <laughs> and uh, we've got, uh, I guess, his only appearance in an Anderson film, James Kahn, um, playing uh, the mysterious crime boss who our three main characters think they're working for in pulling off a, a major heist, uh, or maybe not so major heist. It, it depends how you, you want to look at it. Um, and, and basically, uh, it, it's just kind of a weird romp, almost like a, almost like a satire on heist movies in a way. With yeah. the, you know, th- with this shaggy dog story of these three guys holding up in a in a remote motel while they're trying to get their plan together and get their act together, and uh, the squabblings between them and then some of their other family members. And there's there's lots of fun, quirky touches. Um, Sometimes it's it, it can be like unexpectedly hard hitting in places where you may not expect. Certainly based on his, his later work, um, but, uh, but for the most part, it's an enjoyable watch. It's set in Texas, um, and uh, it's you know even though Rushmore I think was filmed there, this is the only film I think that maybe is recognizably filmed in his home uh, home area, and uh, it it. Uh, it does stand up pretty well uh, as as an early film, just based on the energy of it and and sort of the gameness of everybody uh, on this project. And um, I'm guessing um, Wes and and the uh, the Wilson brothers were friends going back to, to what to high school or university. I think yeah. they met in university somewhere in Texas. Uh, yeah, I think I read that. Uh, yeah, I I was charmed by the film. It feels more like indebted to the sort of '90s indie indie aesthetic than yeah, to, very much to so. what Anderson became. Uh, but it does have some elements. He, while he's not he hasn't got his recognizable visual style yet, he's getting there. Thematically, he's on track. Sort of a group of misfits forming a kind of oddball family. That's very much the kind of stories he tells. Uh, Owen's Owen Wilson's character is really irritating. I found, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, you know, he is more annoying here than he is in any Anderson film up to and including the Darjeeling Limited. Uh, uh, but he is, you know, he's still Owen Wilson. There's still a likability about him. And his brother, Luke, is terrific as well. In fact, the fact that they are they share so many scenes together and they're supposed to be buddies rather than brothers, I found that a little distracting. It's like they're so clearly brothers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they don't look entirely alike, but the way they speak 
and the way they react to each other, they feel they feel to me like brothers. And in fact, there are other another Wilson brother, Andrew, plays a role in the film as Future Man. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a uh, it's a charming little film. I I don't know that I will revisit it again. Uh, you know, if I go while watching, if I decide I'll need another Anderson Jag, I don't know if this is one I'll watch again. But I yeah, I liked it. I I, I didn't like it nearly as much as some of like the next one, which was Rushmore. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting kind of signpost towards where he's going to go from here. Uh, I think when we were watching it, I remarked that it felt like you mentioned that sort of '90s indie aesthetic. I, I, to me, it felt like a like a screwball comedy with Hal Hartley dialogue. Yeah, <laughs> kind of, you sure. know, where things are kind of working across purposes, and there's kind of this uh, very. Um, measured way of, of de- dealing delivering lines and things like like I think Anderson likes his characters to speak in a certain way much like Hartley does but um, uh, it doesn't have the visual stylization to kind of offset that that would come along in later films um, but it does have more of a screwball sensibility than you might find in a, in a Hartley film um, and you see you see elements of it that would pop up later like when they actually do pull a heist on a cold storage uh, place. It's very similar to say like the pirate attack in uh, yeah. the Royal Aqu- Life Aquatic. Life Aquatic, sure. You know, totally. it ha- has that. It's it's set to kind of a you know. I think in, in Life Aquatic it was set to uh, um, maybe it was Iggy Pop, Iggy and the Stooges, I think, or something like the Search and Destroy. And in this film, ugh, I'm <laughs> drawing a blank on what the song was off the top of my head, but but it, it has that kind of rock and roll energy, and and it stands up out from the rest of the film, where you know other scenes have this kind of lollygagging pace and all of a sudden we're into like you know quick cutting and lots of uh lots of action and and dramatics and but but staged in kind of a not amateurish way but in a uh, enthusiastic yet not necessarily um completely professional way i i don't really know how to describe it but it, it's it, it's not framed like action scenes from big action right films. sure totally like, and it's neither is it as self-conscious as some of his later films. He's yeah. he's he's sort of shooting from the hip in a way that is actually quite charming. Uh, and I I really appreciate that that energy definitely carried through into Rushmore. Uh, Rushmore he's starting to frame his shots like we're flipping through a picture book, which I think becomes more and more his sort of go-to style in films subsequently. Uh, though he's not quite there yet. Uh, it, what I did like about Rushmore though is he. Another common thread in his films is the sort of like the 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 deep feeling of children and how youth, young people, and kids have a knowledge of the world that somehow is more true and more faithful and more honest than adults. And uh, even his character here, uh, Max Fisher, played by Jason Schwartzman, uh, who is this teenage, he's brilliant at so many things. Uh, he is involved in so many extracurricular groups at his private school, but he it, it, it is very much badly impacting his schooling and his studying. And as a result, uh, he's almost always on the verge of getting thrown out. Uh, <laughs> though Brian Cox, his, his principal, uh, play, playing Dr. Nelson Guggenheim, has sympathy for him and wants to help him. And in fact, so does everyone around him. They all want to help him. But he is uh, he's very sort of wrong-headed and and then when he falls in love with uh, Olivia Williams' character, she plays an elementary school teacher, and then that becomes a a, a point of contention because Bill Murray, who plays uh, Herman Bloom, uh, the two of them compete for her affections, and uh, it's it's so uh, it's kind of outrageous 
kind of funny and kind of sad all at once, which is really uh, the sweet spot for Wes Anderson. Uh, and, you know, and in, in no small way did he give uh, Bill Murray a second act of his career. This really launched it. Like, I feel like Bill Murray was, you know, he had done all these big budget um, comedy movies. He had done great work, but he wasn't doing a whole lot with his career in the mid-90s. And then Rushmore came along and everyone saw him differently. And all of a sudden he was doing much more sort of bittersweet roles in a way that uh, that just were, you know, was just amazing to see him in. Um, and yeah, he, he for anybody who hasn't seen Rushmore, um, that he that is is maybe the the best part of it is watching Murray find this 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 moment in, in his career this this channel of of real melancholy underneath his his humor and it's wonderful to see yeah it feels like as far as Murray goes it feels like uh, it hadn't been that long since we watched him sleepwalk his way through uh, Ghostbusters two and uh, you know and even Scrooge to some degree I I didn't think though well, I, that's not a film I'm fond of at all no although I did say um, Quick Change is one of the films I like where he had a little bit of the darkness that he shows yeah that is probably one of the better uh, later career films prior to. Uh, the Wes Anderson revolution, if you will. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, but, but, but yes, here definitely he gets to have a full fleshed out character and, uh, you know, prove that he does have some, some acting chops that hadn't, he had shown in the past, but uh, maybe uh, not with the director that was able to fully exploit them. Uh, yeah, Rushmore stands out very tall and, and, and um, proud in the Anderson filmography, maybe because of the strong central character of Max Fisher because I don't, you know, the, the, the films that come after, they're more ensemble pieces, which is great. I love ensemble films, but uh, sometimes I wonder that maybe he should have uh, a stronger uh, central character once in a while. And, um, you know, and, and that's not always the case. Um, in Life Aquatic, obviously, Bill Murray is Steve Zissou, who's a, 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 doesn't have many admirable <laughs> qualities and, uh, you know, which was what made me uh, take so long to warm to it. Certainly the first time around, it left me a bit cold. And, you know, once I sort of knew the arc, I, I could return to that film and appreciate it a lot more. But um, I feel like maybe Wes Anderson needs to return to a story that does maybe zoom in more on one character. Because, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think um, Atari and Isle of Dogs, I don't feel, was very strongly stretched out. I think, yeah. you know, if one of the flaws of that film... Uh, you know, is that that character is kind of a cipher from pretty much from start to finish. Um, and, uh, you know, something that somebody like Max Fisher really hasn't come along again in uh, in subsequent films. Um, you know, and, and Max, of course, has some pretty horrible attributes. He does, know? yeah. You know, you, you do feel for him, you know, the, the, the way he tries to hide his, his family past and all that kind of stuff is, is really kind of sad and pathetic and you kind of feel for his desire to, to be something more, but then you know when when he kind of throws himself at his teacher, you, it's, it's a, that's one of the most repellent moments in the entire West Anderson yeah. filmography. I, I, have, I have a friend who can't watch the film at all because he just gets so frustrated with Max, and I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, sure, it's I get it, and and he treats his buddy Dirk, who is like his best friend, really badly. Uh, yeah, there's a lot about him that is not terribly likable. You know, it's funny. It just occurred to me thinking about Rushmore, how much Lady Bird recently is, has a quality to it that reminds me of Rushmore. They would make a good uh, double feature, I think, the uh, um, Greta Gerwig film. Um, but uh, 
But yeah, uh, and after following Rushmore uh, was The Royal Tenenbaums, a film that I remember enjoying when I first watched it, but I've gone back to see it a couple of times and have not enjoyed it as much, and I believe <laughs> you and I share this feeling about The Royal Tenenbaums. It really does manifest the style that I think that Anderson has become known for, is the 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 way he sets up his his shots, the way he uses music. Well, he, he was, although he was deep into the British Invasion soundtrack in Rushmore, uh, I felt like it was all just clicking for him in The Royal Tenenbaums, but I think the problem there is that there's almost no Nobody that you really like in the film. The whole family are damaged and selfish and unhappy, and it's it's rare. I mean, towards the end, you find moments of joy as they connect in various ways. And Gene Hackman is so watchable. Uh, it just reminds you reminds me how much I actually miss that guy on screen when you watch the film. But but yeah, I do find it made my teeth ache a little bit, um, and uh, I'm not exactly sure why. Yeah, it's it's Gene Hackman is definitely the reason to watch this film. It's it's too bad he didn't bow out with this one, and unfortunately waited around for Welcome to Mooseport um, <laughs> <laughs> to, to to make his career bow. But uh, I'll try. I try to think of this film as kind of like his his um, you know his his big final bow. And uh, yeah, this this film uh, watching it again made me a little uncomfortable. I don't. It's it's something about the frenetic pace of it when. You know, it's telling a family story that maybe it needed to stretch out a little bit more and and give these characters a little more room to breathe. But it, it's it's in setting the whole thing up, it 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 is it does kind of fall prey to the preciousness and the um, you know that kind of just too much sugar all at once kind of thing. And and the the constant narration, uh, you know, at least through the first you know forty minutes or so, kind of wore me down too. I was I was tired of it. Um, yeah, it's. It, uh, you know, it, the obvious influence on this film, I guess, was, um, I guess, some of the J.D. Salinger uh, short stories, um, you know, about families and so on. And there's a specific family in, whose name escapes me at the moment, but the, in his, some of his short stories, that was definitely an inspiration here. And, of course, uh, you know, when the DVD came out and it looked like a paperback book and it's, you know, criterion packaging, that kind of just sealed the deal on, on that. And um, I feel that maybe it needed an injection of maybe some different influences and some other flavors because um, it does feel a bit too samey in, in that kind of uh, high-toned irritability that kind of tracks throughout this film. And, uh, I, you know, I, I will watch it again, uh, but I was actually kind of surprised at, at how much it kind of set my teeth on edge a little yeah. bit as yeah. I was watching it again because yeah. I remember really loving it at the time in the theater, but I think maybe on, on the big screen I was kind of more focused on the world that was being created mm. And on the small screen, it was just those character flaws and you know things that irked me and and yeah. uh, and left me feeling a little cold to it. The the fictionalized, you know, his his creation of fictionalized worlds in in different cultures is definitely manifest here too because it's like a fictionalized Brooklyn uh, in a way that and a literary one, which uh, maybe uh, you know is something that uh, that he shared. And part of the reason that he connected with Noah Baumbach, who became his collaborator, he sort of moved from writing movies with Owen Wilson, he moved on to writing movies with Noah Baumbach in uh, the next one, which was The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, which I think you and I can both agree is a high high watermark, (laughs) if you will. Uh, I love this film, and I still love the playfulness of it, and there's a couple of reasons why. Uh, It's... It's the it's the the ode to uh, sort of a boy's own adventure 
you know, a group of buddies getting together and enjoying and going on adventure, everyone having a special skill. Uh, and this is something that I feel like has, he's, he's borrowed from, from a lot of stories of the past. Uh, he certainly borrowed, uh, notably from the, uh, uh Jacques Cousteau, who, uh, of course he, I guess he never got like official credit or official, <laughs> uh, you know, nod from the Cousteau estate. So, uh, so I know that in some of the, um, bonus materials, all of that, uh, any reference to Cousteau has been redacted, uh, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. You know, it's really funny, uh, in, um, in Rushmore, of course, there's a subplot where Max is trying to get an aquarium built at, uh, at the school yes. because, uh, the teacher, played by Olivia Williams, uh, likes has an aquarium in her classroom. She likes fish, so he decides to go all out and try and get the school to build an aquarium. And there's right, scenes he gets, of he gets Herman Bloom to invest. Yeah, and 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 there's scenes of him watching old. I, I don't think they're actual Jacques Cousteau documentaries. I think they're pseudo Jacques Cousteau documentaries. But there's like you know the lettering and everything is exactly the same, yeah. just like in um, Life Aquatic. And I I remember watching that and going, oh man, you know, I, watching it for the first time since that. Life Aquatic came out and spotting all these references to, sure. to fish and aquarium and, and especially the scene where he's watching like a, a fake Jacques Cousteau documentary and, um, you know, thinking about that weird little signpost. And, and he does that all throughout the films. I mean, in Rushmore, I think there's a shot of a dog carrier sitting on a pile of garbage and, you know, which is weird, you know, like just weird to think about. Okay, was he thinking about Isle of Dogs way back then? And clearly, I wouldn't be surprised. Clearly, you know, the, the Wes Anderson cinematic universe is broad. Uh, but yeah, I, I want to say a few things about uh, Steve Zissou. I love all the characters. I love the sprawling cast. Jeff Goldblum as Zissou's snaky nemesis <laughs> wearing the bathing suit is amazing. Uh, and I really, and speaking of Goldblum, I really like how the life aquatic is, especially the end, is deeply indebted to Buckaroo Banzai and the end <laughs> yes, of that film. In, in a big way. Um, I love Willem Dafoe's German accent. I love the cutaway miniature of the ship. Uh, I love the shot of Steve where he's talking and the orca is playing behind him through the window. Uh, that is incredible shot. Maybe my favorite single shot in all of Wes Anderson films. Uh, I love the fact Bud Court is in it. Um, and I really enjoyed that Kate Blanchett's character uh, shows up. And funny, uh, I presented this film at the Halifax Central Library uh, a few months back. And uh, I had forgotten that she was even in this movie. I mean, there's so many <laughs> yeah. joys in this film that is am- amazing. Can you imagine forgetting that Kate Blanchett is in a movie and she's so good? And not only that, but in her cabin on the boat, what's on the wall behind her? A map of Nova Scotia. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Go figure. And in fact, uh, yeah, and that's, there's also a reference to Nova Scotia in the Royal Tenenbaums. I think Luke Wilson gets off a boat that just came from Halifax. Oh, uh, okay. Like so, right. and uh, I, I guess I should reveal here that apparently either Anderson's family or the Wilson's family, uh, and I've heard this from somebody in Pictou County, that they had a summer home somewhere on the Northumberland Strait in that area. I don't know. I've never heard it proven or I've never heard it from a different source, but a friend of mine whose mom was in real estate apparently says this is true, but I've never corroborated it. So I don't know if that's true, but it is unusual that there's been at least two Nova Scotia references in two of his films. I feel like that that's a deliberate thing. Well, maybe he's planning to come up here and make one. That would be great. I hope so. Well, Willem Dafoe is just here. So, right. There you go. So you never know. Um, but, oh. uh, uh, I just want to also say that uh, one of the great joys of Steve Zissou uh, is uh, Mark Mothersbaugh's music 
and who of course from Devo now making song, uh, soundtracks all the way around and uh, and the, the acoustic David Bowie covers by the Brazilian Brazilian singer Sue George just wonderful stuff yeah and those actually sort of attained a popularity that lived on beyond the film too which is uh, I think something that brings people to it as well now we've already spoken about Darjeeling Limited some, so we won't we don't need to go into it too much here. Uh, I think one of the things I like most about the film is that when I saw it in the cinema, it opened with a short film, the Hotel Chevalier, which is available on the Blu-ray and the DVD, uh, which is a you know ten minute or so feature, little tiny little short that relates to the uh, to the rest of the film. In that uh, one of the characters played by Jason Schwartzman, uh, Jack, one of the three brothers has this uh, relationship with Natalie Portman's character and they meet in a hotel in Paris and uh, and they, uh, they they he insists on playing the song Where Did You Go To My Lovely by uh, Peter Sardstedt. Sardstedt? Something like that. <laughs> Something like that. And uh, it's wonderful and I sort of wish that all of the brothers had their own short film because I feel like it gave that character a lot more depth than, than the other characters had. In I the gotta film. say, I hate that song. Oh, I've you? always hated that song. <laughs> and it's right in your sweet spot from I, the 60s. I know. It's it's an annoying song. Uh, I want to slap the guy singing it who's so pompous and and such comes across like such a phony. And uh, I'm guessing the girl that he's singing to is just as much a phony as he is. So that's, <laughs> that's my take on that song. I never liked it. It's, All right. It's, um, you know, it's just some, it's like a European version of, you know, something by Bobby Goldsboro or something. It's just right. treacle as far as I'm concerned. So so having, being sort of a captive to that song, because it also shows up in Darjeeling as well. So, you know, I, I have yeah, to suffer through it more than once in the course yeah. of watching this film. Yeah, I didn't mind it so much, but I hear what you're saying. Well, it's a personal thing. <laughs> I will say, though, that one of the things I did really like about Darjeeling was the fact that Anderson chose to shoot on an actual train. So a lot of that stuff, including the interiors, were shot on a train with, with breakaway walls so they could move the camera around. But the feeling of being on the train was really something special, and I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, it's very much a travelogue. You Especially know? that scene at the end where we get to see all the characters kind of where they are now or whatever, you know, at the end of the film, including Natalie Portman, who shows sure. up for like, I guess she had to fly to India for basically 30 seconds of screen time <laughs> and uh, and then just spent two more weeks just wandering around India and mm-hmm. since they paid for her airfare. Um, and, and of course, you know, Bill Murray's character who just shows up at the very start and you think the film, he's going to be involved in the film in a major way. And then- yeah. Guess what? <laughs> he's, he's basically, I think, a, one vers- of the, a version of the father or something. I think. Yeah, one yeah. of the best cameos- uh, yeah, because of course we don't see the father. No, we just see his luggage, which plays a big role in the film. <laughs> Throughout the film. Yeah. Um, so after that was The Fantastic Mr. Fox in 2009. This is a film I did rewatch, even though I didn't really like it much the first time I saw it. I liked it a lot more seeing it again. Certainly I enjoyed uh, George Clooney in the lead role. Uh, playing kind of, in my head, he sounded kind of like he was doing a Burt Reynolds impersonation, like from one of Reynolds' yeah, films that. from the 70s. Uh, yeah, and I, Hooper. I, I, yeah, <laughs> Hooper, exactly. Uh, and I liked uh, Andre, Alexander Desplat's song, uh, Bogus and Bunts and Bean, One Fat, One Short, One Lean, Those Horrible Crooks So Different in Looks were nonetheless equally mean. I thought that was a great, <laughs> a great song. But uh, yeah, I, 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 there were also parts of it where like when Jarvis Cocker showed up to play a banjo and sing a good old hoedown tune in the soundtrack, uh, I, I, that drove me a little crazy. Uh, yeah, I, I, there, were, there were parts of the film I found a little too indulgent, a little too childish. But, uh, you know, at the same time, 
it was it was better to see it a second time. I, I I felt a little more at peace with it the second time I saw it. Yeah, the first time I saw it, I'm trying to think. I I saw it in a theater. I think maybe I was in Montreal. I was up there to see a show or something. It had nothing to do in the afternoon. It just happened to be the weekend that it opened. So I went to see it, you know, by myself in the theater. There weren't that many people at the screening uh, in the middle of the afternoon somewhere in downtown Montreal. And 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 I I saw it and I I, I felt it was a bit arch. You know, I, maybe that's a word that gets tossed around a lot. But that was the feeling that it was. It seemed pretty kind of full of itself or something. Like it was like, look what I can do. I mean, I like the animation. I'm a big fan of animation, as you know. Um, you know, it's based on a Roald Dahl story, which, you know, I certainly loved those as a kid. Knowing what a jerk he was in real life, I'm less enamored with them. But right. but uh, some of those stories are still, still enjoyable. Um, and, uh, you know, there's certainly like, and I love the members of the voice cast. It certainly seemed to have all the right parts. But it there there was just a a, a bit of a uh, atmosphere of smug about it that uh, that didn't quite go away the second time around. I think maybe I did enjoy it more the second time around, knowing what to expect. Um, but there's still aspects of it that don't really endear this film to me as much as I thought it would. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, now, Moonrise Kingdom, in some ways, seems to me like the quintessential Wes Anderson film, especially given that it's mostly centered around kids. And it is really, but at the same time, I don't know. I gave myself over to it, and I enjoyed it when I saw it in the cinema, and I've enjoyed it since seeing it again. It's it's never going to be one of my favorites, but I still feel like, like if someone really wanted to get a sense of what Wes Anderson's all about, it's this film about kids, you know, and and um, Boy Scouts and running away from from responsibility and from messed up adult adults. You know, I think I think Moonrise King, Kingdom is is quite delightful, and it's uh it's about manners and misfits, and uh, there's a real joy here that I I really appreciate. Yeah, I I liked it about as much uh, rewatching it as I did when I first saw it in the theater, which is quite a bit. Um, yeah, it didn't go up or down in my opinion, and you're right, it does. It is a film that I will continue to enjoy, um, probably an equal quality uh, quantity. It's uh, the kids are charming. Uh, the cast is well used. Bruce Willis is about as good as he ever is. Um, you know, like having just watched Death Wish, where he just kind of is a zombie through the whole thing. It's it's nice to go back and see something where he's a little. It seems like he's a little more invested and a little more human um, as a and a, as a kind of a reminder of what he can be. Uh, I think Looper is another film along those lines, and I kind of hope that he gets a chance to return to doing that kind of work if he feels like it. I don't know if he does. Um, and uh, you know Bill Murray's role is is fairly slight. He's he's, although it is interesting that he plays a bit of an underdog here. He's not like this kind of smug on top of everything, uh, superior feeling kind of character like Steve Zissou. He's kind of been worn down by years of marriage and and to a certain degree a certain amount of betrayal and disappointment. And yes. I, you know, so I like the fact that his character is a little bit different than than other characters he's played in the Anderson films. Um, and uh, you know, it does you know the fact that it's all set. In the great outdoors, for the most part, gives it a, a really kind of fresh, natural look, which is unusual. It's not as crazily art directed necessarily. Yeah. Um, I yeah, mean, yeah, certainly sure. aspects of it are like the tent. I mm -hmm. mean, doesn't uh, I think uh, I think Ed Norton Scoutmaster has a Burberry tent? I think or something like that. Like <laughs> there are there are a few elements of it that are a bit too precious for their own good, but um, I, I feel like it's toned down to a certain degree. It does seem to go on a bit more than it needs to in terms of the story like you just when you think it's winding down there's like a whole other act yeah i don't know yeah. that was necessary but but uh you know it's i still find the kids charming i think it it 
does get to be fairly honest in exploring kind of that, you know, young teenage sexuality in a way that um, you don't get from a lot of other films. Uh, maybe by dressing it up as a, as this comedy, uh, they can get away with it a bit more. But it does seem to go a bit further in that direction than you expected. Yeah, to. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and I, I really liked. I guess partly because it's set in the mid '60s. I think it's kind of hitting another one of of Anderson's sweet spots. And I also want to say that. Uh, anyone who w- enjoys this film watches uh, this film, and I would recommend a double feature with uh, with a film called Patterson, but I'm not going to tell you why. <laughs> you know why, don't you, Steven? Yes. <laughs> and it's about uh, actors who are in this film uh, appearing in a small part of Patterson, and it's such a delight seeing them again. I have to say that, that watching it, I was just like... I couldn't quite believe it and I thought it was just wonderful so anyway uh, not that they are otherwise much alike at all but uh, it's it's uh, yeah I would say go out and see Patterson once you've seen uh, Moonrise Kingdom now uh, and also yeah. Francis McDormand can do no wrong so well yes there you go that's the other thing um, so the last film that we haven't really spoken about is Grand Budapest Hotel which came out in 2014 and I think is slowly gaining and may pass my affection on my list of favorite Wes Anderson films. It may pass Steve Zissou by virtue of it just having so many interesting ideas and also channeling a story about, you know, strange European eccentricities in the midst of the onslaught or onset of fascism. Uh, clearly, it's set in a world wherein the Nazis are, or a Nazi pseudonym, pseudonymous Nazis are on their <laughs> way. And, uh, and I really felt like that darkness. I mean, this is a film that has room for a sort of a killer tracking a guy down and then having his fingers chopped off and a head in a basket. Like that kind of darkness, even though it's played kind of for chuckles, it's a pretty hollow chuckles, uh, really cuts the kind of sweetness that uh, Anderson is sometimes accused of. And as a result, the Grand Budapest Hotel has flavors to it that maybe none of his other films have. And it really is a wonderful film. Yeah, it's definitely nice to see that darker uh, story element creeping into this film. And uh, uh, hopefully with his next live action film, he'll return to an idea. Maybe he'll do something completely outside of his uh, normal bailiwick. I, I would like to see that. Um, and this film indicates that he might be willing to go there. We'll we'll see what happens. Um, you know, I love the fact that the sort of the key realm of influence for this film is, uh, it, like I said, those Hollywood Ernst Lubitsch uh, comedies, these romantic comedies that that were set in non-existent European countries and that sort of thing. Even though he's sort of upgrading it to even if it's not our modern day, it's maybe a bit more modern day than those films were. Um, and, I, you know, the conceit of, of shooting it in three different aspect ratios because of the different eras that it takes place in, I thought, was fairly clever. I thought, mm-hmm. you, know, that, that's, you know, that's certainly a nod to the real film nerds out there. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like yours us. truly. And, um, uh-huh. you know, without being too, too obvious about it. And, um, the, the, you know, I, I can't wait to revisit this one. I've only seen it the one time in the theater. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm kind of, chomping at the bit to see it again. I just haven't, uh, obviously this would have been the right time to do that, but I just didn't have it handy and, and uh, I am definitely looking forward to it again. We can't, you know, we can't see everything all no, the time. No, can't Steve. see everything. We try. We really try. Lord knows I do. Uh, yeah, and Rafe Fiennes in this is so terrific. He's the sort of ostensible hero of the story as uh, Gustav H., the uh, manager of the hotel, the titular hotel. And uh, it is it is so, and there's so much great facial hair in the movie. <laughs> Watching it again, 
there's a scene where uh, Jeff Goldblum's lawyer is running through the art gallery trying to get away from Willem Dafoe's sort of psychopath. And uh, every shot, it's just a series, series of rooms that he runs through, and every shot is so perfectly symmetrically, <laughs> uh, you know, composed. It is, it makes you, it actually, I did this. I stopped, a, I, I froze it at every shot just so I could watch and have a look at well, all the effort that went into every single room that he only spends a fraction, you know, two or three seconds in before he moves on to the next one. Uh, yeah, it is... It is the one that uh, that you know I might I might wind up loving the most, and uh, and I'm not going to apologize for it. So that's been our look at the work of Wes Anderson, and we we didn't even talk about all the short films that are available of his. There are a bunch of them online. If anyone cares to have that's a gander at them, there's some good ones in there too. Um, his American Express commercial. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, this is this is lends me your ears. Uh, you know the the podcast where we talk about old movies and uh, new movies. And uh, if you want to reach out to us, we have a Facebook page. We are also on Twitter at lends me your ears, and I can be found on Twitter through my uh, my blog and its own little podcast, and it's called at flaw in the iris. And I have a Twitter account at ns underscore s-c-o-o-k-e. And you can also find me in the pages and website of the Chronicle Herald. And if you would like to uh, help support this wonderful cause of this podcast, we have a Patreon account. So please feel free to send us some shekels. We would appreciate that. I want to say, say thank you very much to CKDU 88.1 FM here in Halifax for allowing us the production services, the, the studio with where we record this show. And they also air it every second Tuesday at 5.30. And many thanks also to Village Sound for producing and uh, putting all the bells and whistles on it. And thanks so much for listening. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.